we have John on the line. What do you want to ask him? I know multifamily is a team sport and that scares me a little bit being a DIY queen, you know, <laughs> what would you say is the best way to find partners that are aligned with your values? I always look at it as a partnership is like a short marriage. You're not going to be married forever, probably in this, but you're going to be together for three to five to seven, maybe 10 years. And you want to make sure that it's a person that you like their personality, but probably even more importantly, that you have the correct roles. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Streamline Capital Group. As typical, I'm very excited for this show today. We've got two amazing people with us today. And so I'd like to introduce those guys to you right now. We've got John Warren and Jackie Coombs with us. As is tradition, John, you're going to be up to the plate first. Love my, my baseball references again. John, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on here. This is great. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, it was great meeting you in person at the uh, the GOB Network Conference in, in your hometown of Chicago about a month, month and a half ago. Nice meeting you and great having you on the podcast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a good networking event too. Really good times. A lot of good people. That's why I like, like those events. A lot of good people in one room. Why don't you do us a favor? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us an idea of your background and how you got into to multifamily. Sure. Yeah. So I am the managing broker and owner for Forte Properties, which is a you know real estate investor focused brokerage here in Chicago. We are in the the western suburbs, right outside of the city, and we also cover good chunks of the city, the northwest, southwest sides, a little bit in the south. That's kind of what I do on the day to day is run the brokerage and the team, and I also invest in real estate apartment buildings, particularly value add apartment buildings. We're up to 154 units now, all in one kind of one clustered area there right outside of Chicago in the Burbs. Nutshell, who I am and what I do. I transitioned into doing multifamily about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. My wife and I purchased a four unit. It was the only residential investment property we ended up buying. And -hmm. it was awesome. Still have three of the four tenants today. It's a great property. And and that kind of gave me the bug. And from there, just been growing ever since and trying to figure out how to grow this thing into something bigger. Yeah. And that's a challenge for everybody. You get the bug and you want to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, one, one thing I'll, I'll point out for the listeners, four units, the for some reason, there's a line in the sand between residential and commercial. And once you hit five, it's commercial. When you said the only residential property, that's four unit, everything else, presumably is five and above. So a real estate agent and then getting into multifamily. How did you find your day job helping or detracting from getting into multifamily? It's actually helped me quite a bit. I know there's various schools of thought on that, but for me, I I focus heavily on that one to four unit space, the residential Mm -hmm. space. Because of that, I don't think that I'm really a threat to commercial brokers that focus on commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. Instead of it being a hindrance, it actually has been a help because I oftentimes hire and use other brokers. Mm -hmm. And I 
sort of understand what their motivations are and have really great working relationships with a lot of the other guys and gals that focus on commercial real estate in this area. So it's been awesome, honestly. And yeah, having a great network of people, you know, attorneys, lenders, title agents, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff that comes with being a successful real estate agent. It only helps you in your investing. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot of different fields that people jump into or real estate from or commercial real estate from. And it seems like what you were doing is one of the easier transitions because you're doing something very similar. Like you said, you know the broker's motivations. And I think one thing that I didn't understand when I first started looking for multifamily properties is I didn't understand the broker motivations. I didn't understand that I was a risk to them. because I didn't have anything going for me. I didn't have any properties myself. I think that's huge is understanding the motivations. If you don't mind, let's dive into that just a little bit more. So when you talk about the broker motivations, what do you think the commercial broker's motivations are when talking with newer investors? Well, I know what the main thing you're looking for is, you know, if they put a contract together with a seller, they don't get a lot of chances at that. You know, they might get two chances or three chances on a smaller deal. On a big deal, they might get one shot at this. They want want to make sure that you're going to be a closer. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I, kind of like you referenced, had to learn the hard way. They don't want to hear that you retrade all the time, that you're making a big stink in your inspection, that you're annoyed over every little thing. And I think that's one of the things that I figured out is, you know, if a deal makes sense, I know that from the beginning and I know that I'm going to figure out a way to close this deal. I've never not closed any of the apartment deals that I put in our contract because I look back, they've, they've all closed and they've yeah. all been varying levels of success. So I think that's that's probably the number one thing. Not easy. Obviously, there's going to be a, a point where you have to pull out of a deal, but it's good when the broker on the other end knows you're not likely to. Yeah. That's one thing. I Like I said, it took me a long time to realize that they want a really good assurance that you are going to close the deal. What I found talking to commercial brokers up front is sometimes it felt like I was getting interrogated. You know, it was, it was, sometimes it felt a little friendlier, like we were playing the 20 questions games, except they were asking the questions that I was answering. But for the most part, they're going to vet people and decide whether or not they're going to spend a lot of time with them. But it's all about, can you close? Thanks for sharing that. Very much appreciate it. Next question I'd like to ask, you know, I don't hear a lot of people investing in Chicago. What's your take on the city of Chicago as an investment and how things worked out for you? There are some added risk factors to an area that's more tenant friendly. There's no doubt about it. I look at that as something of an advantage because I'm willing to take on those added risks. And frankly, it's a it's a great market in a lot of ways because there's so much inventory and there's so much of the right size inventory, especially for kind of your local investor that's willing to you know buy a 12 unit, eight unit, you know, size, 16 unit size property. We're just swimming in a pool of apartment buildings, honestly. It's a great market. Yeah. It's a primary market, which I think is missed by a lot of people. So if you go to get a, like an agency loan, the agency is like Fannie and Freddie love Chicago. And yes. I think this by a lot of people who are in secondary markets who are who say, oh, I can't believe anybody buys in Chicago. Risks are there, no doubt, in C-class. You, you know, if you have an eviction, it's a, a more difficult process. It takes longer, but it's mm-hmm. still not forever. It's still, worst case, maybe six to seven months, five months mm-hmm. if you're lucky. So it's, yep. it's a risk you can mitigate by having a good team. So I guess long story short is I'm really happy here. I also live here, so it, it helps if you're in that market. I don't know if you're picking from a hat, you pick... Chicago, but maybe you do. Mm-hmm. And I think going to that GOB network conference, and I mean, I know Jim Biggs and, and a lot of his team are in Chicagoland area as well. And it kind of opened my eyes. I've said this many times, you know, the best place to, to start looking to invest is your backyard. 
And I had never considered Chicago as an investment. And all of a sudden, I meet all these people who are investing in Chicago. And it started it started making sense. Like, yeah, they're all investing in their backyard. They know the area. They're within a short drive of all the properties. And I think that makes up for a lot of the reasons that, you know, people from outside Chicago don't want to touch it. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that a lot of apartment investors look for is population growth. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, pop, uh, the population is not declining sharply in Chicago. Like, I think mm-hmm. there's this mentality. I think Illinois as a whole has some small loss, mm-hmm. but there's 9 million people in the Chicago MSA. So yeah. many of the other cities we talk about as being good markets would be swallowed by that kind of an MSA. There's so many sub-markets you can explore yeah. um, in any larger city like Chicago. So, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic for me. I've been able to carve yeah. out a, an area that, that works. And it's something that you you mentioned that shouldn't be overlooked, and I just want to stress it, is Chicago is a primary market. And what that means when you're getting debt is the lenders are a lot more friendly on terms. You know, So they, they'll have a lower debt service ratio that you need to hit to get your loan. And what that means is you can usually stretch your proceeds a little better. You, know, you can usually get lower rates and better terms. All things considered, if you're in the primary markets, you, you typically get higher prices. But once again, you're your debt's going to be easier to get as well. Let's talk specifically about one of the properties you've done. As I like to say, pick your first, pick your favorites, you know, pick one to talk about. Let's let's go into a little detail about it. Sure. I mean, I, we've done a lot of really exciting projects, but we just finished one of the most interesting ones. It's a 22-unit building just outside the city in Cicero, which is a C-class market. We took it down right during the pandemic. So it was a really interesting time because it was the eviction moratorium. So there would have been a lot of fear from a lot of people about buying this kind of asset. And we also had very limited records on the tenant base. And it was about eight vacant units going into it. And we were able to completely renovate the property, keep all but one tenant that are still there actually in the property paying, renovate the entire property, turn it around and do a cash out refinance and get about 70% of our money out within wow. uh, within an 18 month span. Okay. So it was pretty it's a pretty spectacular project in a lot of ways. It's a great asset, and it's been it was a fun project to complete because we were able to really take the uh, the ugly duckling, so to speak, and make it a really good functioning apartment building. Now, with with keeping the tenants, did you did you move them to renovated units, or did you leave them in place? How, how did how did you work that out? Yeah, so what we did is we uh, pretty early in the process we said, hey, everybody's getting the same deal. The nice thing is there were 19 one bedrooms and three studios. So we said, look, this is the the cost for the renovated product. It's a pretty high-end renovated product. We didn't do dishwashers and Indian laundry, but we did everything but. So granite, mm-hmm. nice soft-closed cabinets, you know, yep. vinyl plant floors. Like it, it's a nice quality product. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did move people internally. And then what we did to make it really work is we actually hired some high school guys that I know mm-hmm. to help people move so we could get it done fast. But, you know, oh, nice. Honest, a lot of the tenants are, you know, maybe middle-aged. It's, it's challenging to move, you know, floors. Yeah furniture, things like that. Speed precision was important. That's the way we made it work. We had some guys show up a few times to move tenants in between units, and then the, mm-hmm. the contractors would roll right behind them and start the next batch of, they needed a batch of four units to make it efficient for them. So yeah. that's kind of how we pulled off the project. Yeah. And you say you started out with six vacant, right? Is it? Did I, did I hear you right? Was, or eight you know, vacant? I think it was six and we rapidly had eight. Like we had... Okay. I'm trying to remember now. It's funny. Two how quick it, move outs. Yeah. yeah. But you had about a third of the units were vacant, which, you know, some people look at that as a risk. If, if you're doing a value add, I actually kind of like walking into, you know, higher vacancy because you can, you can get into those units immediately and start turning them, start renovating yeah. and get that ball rolling a lot sooner. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's, that is an added bonus. Uh, we, I'm GP on a couple of properties that are in tertiary markets. And at times it's hard to get good contractors. There's just not a large pool to pick from like you would have in, in a Chicago or a Houston or a Dallas or whatnot. A lot of benefits to primary markets. There, there's a lot of reasons why lenders give you better terms. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, cap rates are a lot lower in those areas because there, there's just a lot of benefits there. One thing I'd like to add is is just the the creativity there, you know, hiring a couple of high school students to to move people. I mean, that that's brilliant. I mean, was that was that something you guys have done before or who who thought of that idea? And I'm typically the, the operator or the person that kind of is makes it all happen, mm-hmm. so to speak, on the ground. That's more my strength. So I've done crazy stuff like that before and yep. continue to think like I'm always trying to think outside the box. You know, mm-hmm. if you think of it from the tenant's point of view, like they're excited about the new apartment, but they're probably typically overwhelmed by the construction and mm-hmm. also the thought of moving is a lot for a lot of people. So you say, hey, like and we did different things, the incentives to help them make it work, you know, different for each tenant. But it was like, we can help you move. A lot of these people were excited about that. And yeah. Within one afternoon, boom, they're in their brand new apartment. They're yeah. set up for the next month. They're comfortable. Now they've got, a, they, we, we put in like a wall unit air conditioner, like now they have AC working. Mm-hmm. It was also interesting. We did a full electrical conversion and we took the building mm-hmm. to all electrical. So we, mm-hmm. the water was just non-functioning. It didn't heat the building evenly. There were cold pockets. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now people have control over their heat and cooling and it was just a much nice. more setup, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, there, there's also a benefit to keeping the same tenants in a way or moving tenants to the renovated units. And something that I found is it, is it really speeds up the renovation process because now you don't have to wait till their lease to, for it to come up. So you, know, you start with roughly eight renovated units and if you can move eight tenants into those eight newly renovated units, now you've got another block of eight to renovate. And then you, yeah. if you if you keep on doing that, you can actually get your renovations done a lot quicker than you would if you if you're waiting for those twelve month leases to come due at the end. Anyway, it sounds like an exciting project. Thanks for sharing. And seventy percent of your cash back on a refinance, you know, in eighteen months is, is a good deal as well. You're able to redeploy that capital, and you still have asset that's that's performing. Congratulations on that! Great, yeah, great deal. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, for sure. So one thing that I, I love talking about, and it, it kind of helps me to to understand people a little better, see people's motivations. So question for you is what is your big burning why? That's a fairly easy one. I'm uh, I'm a dad and a husband. So I've got uh, three little boys. And for me, it's the financial freedom, but really more of a time freedom, you know, because you, you have to put work into these properties. It's definitely not as passive as some people think, but you can typically, if you think ahead, plan out when you want to focus your energies on a new project. So you can block out really nice bits of time. Like I was able to be t-ball coach for one of my kids and baseball coach the other one. And you know, I, I don't really have like the same restrictions as a nine to five would have. Yeah, there's definitely days that I'm putting in 12 hour days still, but there's days where I can really carve out time for the things that are super important, like spending time yeah. with the kiddo. That resonates a lot with me. I mean, a couple hours from now, when I would normally work in a W2, I'm going to drive my daughter to her, her gymnastics class and, you know, be the dad that's, you know, typically the only dad, you know, sitting and, and watching. I think that that's really, really important. So John, last question for you. And also, I have a lot of favorite questions. I always say everything's my favorite. And I almost said it was my favorite question, but I'll save that for later. So what's next for you? We're in full growth mode. So like I said, we're at 154 units. And uh, the project that I referenced was about five projects ago. So we are moving really, really quickly, uh, trying to scale to 300 units 
we're vertically integrating and we're, we just hired our first maintenance person full-time. So nice. bringing all the different pieces in-house of management so we can hopefully control the, the customer service experience for our, our residents and essentially run a really tight ship so that we can take these value-add buildings and not just do the value-add, but also provide value, which is going to create a long-term stable environment for tenants and a long-term you know, profitable environment for ownership. Awesome. Well, now now is a fun time. We get to transition to to Jackie, who's been waiting patiently on, on, on the line with us. So Jackie, welcome to the show today. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is yeah, exciting. No. Yeah, <laughs> I love talking real estate. <laughs> podcasts are fun and you know, talking real estate is fun. So win-win is what this is. Anyway, <laughs> Jackie, do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself. Kind of always always been interested in real estate. My mom did, did a few live-in flips when I was a kid and we used to go to construction sites and see like new builds and stuff. That was exciting. <laughs> kind of fast forward, um, I was a stay-at-home mom for almost a decade yeah. and getting ready to head back into some sort of work. You know, I knew I wanted to work for myself. I tried some computer business stuff yeah. that really wasn't my thing. Stumbled back on real estate, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that kind of, you know, lit the fire and committed myself to six months of study before I bought anything. Mm -hmm. And then bought my first single family rental in summer of 2016. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got that first rent check and I haven't looked back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's so nice. I remember I remember my first rental. I mean, I was a couple of years ahead of you, but I remember getting that check in the mail. And I mean, it was literally mailed to me every week. And I mean, I, I know where the term mailbox money comes from because, you know, <laughs> we would get that check in the mail every month and open it up, you know, take it to the bank, cash it. First uh, single family investment in 2000, you said 16, right? Yeah. Yep. Nice. Awesome. I think most people start, I mean, I, I do the same thing. Most people start in the single family space and eventually, you know, graduate uh, in, in a way up to, to multifamily. You know, one question that everybody gets asked on this podcast and here it comes, you know, what's your big burning why? <laughs> I've spent a lot of time on this, actually. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I actually have a no- number of them, but my number one is like you guys had already alluded to my family. I'm a single mom now, three. I want that time freedom. You guys have said I've been able to do the volunteer stuff at the girls' school. I can still kind of be a stay-at-home mom, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been great. And I've been able to pursue other activities like art and music and Mm -hmm. stuff that I like doing. I love the, the freedom it gives, you know, real estate investing gives because you're able to pick and choose when you work a lot and pick and choose where, where you, you spend your time. Unlike, you know, a lot of W2s, you know, I spent 20 years plus with a W2 and missed a lot of stuff that I, I wish I would have made. Jackie, that said, we have on the line. What do you want to ask him? Basically what you described is what I want to do next. <laughs> I do a value add, you know, smaller multi. I know multifamily is a team sport and that scares me a little bit being a DIY queen, you know, (laughs) what would you say is the best way to find partners that are aligned with your values? That's an awesome question. And I have had multiple partners and 
I always tell people I've been really blessed to have a lot of really fantastic partners, a lot of it through dumb luck. So again, mm-hmm. just transparent. I, I can see where you could be horrible if you have the wrong partner. I always look at it as a partnership is like a short marriage. You're not going to be married forever, probably in this, but you're going to be together for three to five to seven, maybe 10 years. And you want to make sure that it's a person that you like their personality, but probably even more importantly that you have the correct roles. So sounds like if you're DIY, you're more like my style. I still have a drill and a saw in the back of my car. I think you'd be the operator. You're the boots on the ground, most likely. Mm-hmm. So meeting the brokers, looking at the buildings, knowing from your experience if this is a you know a total dumpster fire or if you can just paint the cabinets and throw some cheap laminate countertops on and roll. So you're that boots on the ground person. So what you typically need is somebody with deeper pockets. And I was really fortunate my uh, to meet a partner along the way, my second business partner who had way more business experience than I did in much, much deeper pockets. And I was able to do one deal with them and learn just an absolute ton about what I should be thinking about. But really somebody that has deeper pockets just needs an operator. So it's like you have to find that person that that needs you. They don't want to just be a passive investor. They want to have you know, be a general partner, but they also don't want to be meeting the high school kid that you know around the corner that can move the tenant <laughs> back to that earlier analogy. So <laughs> I guess you're yeah. just looking for the person who fits the right role. A lot of it's being the right partner as well. And that's something that I think a lot of people miss is that they're looking for the right partner. John alluded to it. He just didn't say it in the same words. You know, you've got to be the right partner as well. And, you know, look, looking back at, you know, I, I recently left a, a partnership that I was in and, you know, maybe I potentially made that mistake at some points was not being the best partner that I could have been at times. It's a two-way street. You're looking for the right partner to complement your skill set, but you also have to be the right partner for, for the group or the team. That's a great answer. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right, Jackie, what's your next question? Where is the best place to start? for financing? Like, I feel like I need to get that piece kind of in place before I know what I can do. So I met the lender that I use primarily here, the local bank at, um, through a meetup contact. So I've gone to many, many meetups, kind of like Brian alluded to, that's how we met. I can't take credit for having any kind of brilliant idea. Almost every single good contact I've had has come from someone else. So I (laughs) It's going to be a local bank or credit union, most likely for your neighborhood apartment size deals, which is like under a million dollar loan. Yeah. And for me, I was trying to find somebody that would let me put down 20%, which there are definitely banks that will. I've heard of people doing even less, but that's kind of what I've found is 20% down. And I've just done you know regular personal guarantee loans on most of the smaller deals. And most of these local banks are looking for that kind of a relationship. And then Kind of like Brian said earlier, what I've found, again, I've kind of grown in this aspect of my investing career, but it dawned on me one day, what do these banks need? Like they need something too. And the banks that are multifamily, they actually need good operators. So again, they're kind of just another partner. You're providing them with a good stable loan that they can put their, um, the people that are, you know, putting deposits in their bank, they can invest them and make a return. And so then you keep your operating accounts with that bank and you really dig in and build that relationship, which is what I've done. And yeah. so that's, that's what's worked well for me. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree, especially if you're looking for those smaller properties. You know, we, I've got several, you know, recourse bank loans, you know, income verified bank loans on, on the smaller properties. And if you go with the local banks, local credit unions, you know, a lot of times they're going to give you better rates and better terms than a lot of the national lenders. 
And what's nice, and I mean, John also said this as well, but you, you build the relationship and, you know, it gets to the point, you know, when, when we closed on, uh, we had a 26 unit in, in Augusta, still have it. When we closed on that, you know, six months ago, I picked up the phone, called my point of contact at the, at the bank and said, hey, we need a, another loan. Can we get the same terms that we got, you know, six months prior? And her answer was, yep. And from there, the verification process was super simple because we were known quantities. She knew me. And anyway, I, I agree with John. You look at the local banks, look at the local credit unions, especially if you're hanging out in the, you know, let's say five to 25 unit space. You know, once you get above that, you know, sometimes the local banks and credit unions can still give you good deals. But from there, you might want to start looking at some of the national lenders as well. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> um, one quick follow-up. Do do they want to see a detailed business plan as well? Or is that, I don't know. <laughs> I, again, my local bank, I mean, your business plan on like a six or an eight unit property is pretty obvious. Like mm-hmm. raise the rents as much as you can and get mm-hmm. the net operating income up. And I, I'm not going to tell you that I've put together some kind of like really detailed proposal on the we, did a, we used the local bank on the construction loan for that 22-unit deal I referenced, and they did want a little bit more of a business plan, but I think that they also realized that the value I provide is that I'm flexible. That's why they like lending to me is I'm a local operator that's invested in this deal. And so I would just give them updates along the way, like, hey, this changed about the plan. Hey, we had to pivot here. But so I guess I, it depends on what your goal is, but if you're doing a really light value add, where you're not borrowing money and things like that from the bank, I doubt you need to do a whole lot in my, you know, again, somewhat limited experience just in what I've done, but I haven't. Yeah, I agree. Once, once again, John, you're getting, you're, you're, uh, you're nailing all these answers, but <laughs> typically the only thing that we put in is we give them our pro forma. Here's how we think the property is going to operate. And if it's a value add, we send them a list of our capital expenses. You know, we are going to do our interior renovations. Here's our budget. Here's what we plan on doing. And the rent bumps that we're going to achieve are built into the pro forma. So that's really our business plan. And if you're if you're underwriting it, if you're analyzing the deal like you know, most people like I think you should, you already have that information there. So you're just giving them a snapshot of your, your underwriting tool. And saying rents are currently here. We're going to put in this much money in in renovations, and after the renovations, rents are going to be here. And if you can show them that, they're they're going to be likely to to give you the loan. One thing I think I would like to add, just because I never hear it talked about, is that on smaller properties like Brian referenced, maybe five to twenty five units, local banks don't tend to like cash out refinances. That's mm-hmm. something. That like on bigger pockets, I don't see a lot. Everybody wants to get in, do their value add and get out. And so I found that when I do deals for where I'm trying to do a cash out refinance, I typically need to go to like the agency debt. So it needs to be a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. I'm oftentimes okay on the smaller deals, not doing the cash out refinance for a variety of reasons. It may just be a cash flow play, or I may be thinking mm-hmm. further down the line, but I don't hear it talked a lot about, but if you're going to go and buy like a local six unit and renovate them, and think you're going to get a loan to cash out in six months. I don't find a lot of local banks that do that in this market. I'm, I'm guessing it's similar in other markets too. We, we haven't tried it yet. I mean, we, we I got uh, a couple of banks in the Carolinas and, and Georgia, and we haven't tried to do a cash out refi on those smaller properties yet. There's one that we're going to do soon. And it was a three-year loan term and we're coming to the end of our three-year loan. So 
Uh, I, I think in that case, we'd have to refinance anyway. So it's a good, good point. I think that's something you need to know going in. It's something you need to talk with the lender with going in. So if you have a plan to refinance at the two or three year mark, you might want to make sure that broker or that, that lender is okay with it because you know, sometimes, you know, they, they want to hold a loan on their books. They have their, they have their own investment criteria and they have their own allocation. We want this, this many, this many loans in multifamily, this many loans in single family. And, you know, it's all about what John said about being a partner with the bank, understanding what they're looking for and, you know, trying to align your business plan with the lender that, uh, that matches what you're trying to do. What other questions do you have? I know this might be a little farther down the line, but I've heard some talk about like once I want to start bringing other investors on like in a syndication, whether or not it's better to do a syndication first or set up a fund ahead of time and then be able to continue to, you know, utilize the fund on each deal. That's an interesting question. I will be the first to tell you that I'm not the syndication master. I think Brian's probably better qualified than me. I've done one syndication. It's okay. so far fine, but we're almost a year in and we're just doing distributions and we're not to the cash out refinance stage. So it's not, um, I'm not as far along in that. And I, my mm-hmm. overall sense of syndication is it's better for bigger deals. And so mm-hmm. I found doing these like one to $2 million deals that really have a lot of meat on the bone. And I have not seen those $5 million to $10 million deals often that make sense in my submarket. Yep. So not to punt, but I think Brian's better to That's answer it. that question. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you, if you want to get to the point to where you're bringing other other people's money in, there's a couple different ways to do it, you know? And if you, if you get to the syndication point, you know, you definitely want to bring in a securities attorney and make sure you're following the rules because the, the SEC... The SEC carves out some some very narrow a very narrow space for us to operate if we're syndicating. You know, otherwise we have to be licensed to sell securities and everything else. So, um, when, when you start getting to the point of bringing in other people's money, I would say the easiest thing to do, and this is better maybe for smaller properties, is if if you can just find two, three, you know, a small number of partners. You know, count them count them on five fingers. And everybody bring a little bit of money to the table. That's probably the most straightforward way to do it. You just start a partnership or an LLC. Everybody contributes the money. Everybody has you know voting rights and economic rights. And that's that's probably the the best way on the smaller properties to do that. Once you get past the point to where you're dividing things up between you know uh, a general partner and a limited partner, meaning. We have responsibilities to operate the par- property, and you guys are just putting money in. You know, that's that's where you start going into syndication, and that's where you start needing to understand the rules around syndication. You know, and 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 the exemptions that you fall under. And when you get to that point, I, I would just say talk to a a syndication attorney, and they can give you some some pretty clear guidance to to keep yourself compliant. You know, last thing you want to do is accidentally, you know, be non-compliant with SEC regulations and, you know, have to give everybody's money back after you've purchased the deal. Not a good spot to be in. Anyway, does that answer your question, Jackie? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Perfect. Well, we are about out of time. So I'm going to ask each of you one last question. John, you get to go first. And that question is, how can listeners learn more about you? 
Sure. Um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I would just give them uh, my email, which is the easiest way to get me. First initial J, last name Warren Broker, jwarrenbroker at gmail.com. All right. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes, jwarrenbroker at gmail.com. And Jackie, same question for you. How can our listeners learn more about you? Probably the best way is through Facebook, Jacqueline Coombs. And if you'd like to email me, it's jackiecs one at gmail.com. All right. Awesome. And we'll have that information in the show notes as well. And if you're interested in connecting with either of these two individuals, you know, just head down to those show notes, tap, swipe, and tap again. And that magical internet thing will will just automatically put you in contact with them. Anyway, mm-hmm. thanks guys for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time and all the, the little gold nuggets that uh, were shared here. Thanks Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.